Welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. We're now a few games into the baseball season and finishing up our opening day series on this show. But our guest today wasn't always a fan of the team he works for now. I hated the Red Sox growing up. But he needed a job, and the team offered him a gig in 2004. But, um, you know, I, I made $8 an hour as an intern for the Red Sox, so I guess I could be bought. From there, he worked his way up, staying with the Red Sox the whole time, except for a quick stint with the Miami Dolphins, to where he is today. I'm Adam Grossman, and I'm the CMO of the Boston Red Sox. As in, chief marketing officer of one of the oldest, biggest, most popular franchises in the league. <laughs> Today, we're chatting with Adam about some of his favorite marketing moments with the Red Sox, from how they came up with certain slogans to why all the players started growing beards one season. We'll also talk about how exactly you're supposed to market things when your team rehires a team manager after he was fired over a cheating scandal, or trades away an MVP-level player considered by many as the best in the whole league, or just plain sucks that season. And finally, we'll get Adam's thoughts on baseball marketing overall, and how rumors about baseball's death have been greatly exaggerated. So, let's begin. Uh, so, we'd love to to get a sense of where you come from. Uh, we know you as the chief marketing officer, the CMO of the Boston Red Sox, but uh, where did your interest in marketing and sports in general, specifically baseball, start? Yeah, so I grew up in Cleveland um, and uh, was fortunate enough to have a, a father who was fanatical um, had, uh, for as a baseball fan, as a sports fan in general. I mean, that sort of was our, our household religion more than anything else. And so when I was in school, um, I felt like, you know, this is something that I would love to love to pursue. My dad always was saying, you know, you should do something that you love. And um, and sports was definitely the the the, the headline for me. Uh, I did. I went to Duke and was a public policy major, and I actually worked with the Durham Bulls on a youth athletic league that they had a that they had in the the city of Durham. The Durham Bulls, in case you're wondering, are a minor league affiliate of another baseball team, the Tampa Bay Rays. And uh, was free to all the families, and they'd done a you know a great job of starting it. And then my friend and I felt like we had a classroom project where we're looking at social entrepreneurship and we said, you know what, we should do something in sports and sort of connect sports and philanthropy. And, and that really ended up being from that classroom, sort of what I consider my first job in sports was to work with the bulls. And um, we started a small nonprofit, raised money and got, you know, new equipment, new, new, um, new equipment, new uniforms. Um, and then we went on a, capital campaign to renovate two fields in, in Durham. And so, um, you know, I think that sort of opened my eyes to sort of not only how powerful sports can be to have an impact, um, but also that, you know, you, you can just, a lot of this is about relationships and just working hard. And, and, and at the end of the day, you know, it sort of opened my eyes to say, oh, maybe I could make this more of a career. Yeah. 
I'm curious, growing up in Cleveland, were you an Indians fan? Or I guess we don't call them the Indians anymore. But, yeah. uh... Cleveland baseball. Yeah, I, I was a huge, huge fan um, and you know went to 40 games a year. 40 to 50, the I mean, it was sort of, uh, it was a lot. I, we, we went to a lot of games growing up. So, and then the Browns had le- were in the process of moving uh, sort of in, in, within those couple of years too. So it became really uh, for those, for those years, a massive baseball town. And um, so again, that sort of all correlated with my, with my love of the game. Did you have to leave that like at the door when you started working for the Red Sox? Yeah, it was funny. It was sort of a weird thing. Cause when I first started with the Red Sox, you know, I was working with Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer. That's Theo Epstein, the team's general manager, and at the time, the youngest GM in MLB history, and Jed Hoyer, one of his assistant managers. And those like those guys, I mean, Theo especially, I mean, was grew up in Boston. And, you know, they were also talking about early on when I first started, they talked about Pedro Martinez in, in 1999 when he pitched against the Indians and, and sort of in this improbable way, sort of like saved the series. And I was at that game, but obviously it was really, I hated the Red Sox growing up. I hated the Yankees growing up. Just some quick background here on what Adam's talking about. It's 1999 and the Indians and Red Sox are facing off in the postseason. Best of five, series tied at two wins apiece. So it's game five, winner go home. After three and a half innings, the game is tied, 8-8. to Then, pitcher Pedro Martinez comes in for the Red Sox, and he pitches the rest of the game. And he doesn't allow one single hit from the Indians. Final score, 12-8. to Red Sox win. No hits allowed by Pedro Martinez from the fourth inning on. And the Red Sox move on. But, I mean, I wasn't not a, a Red Sox fan at all. And, um, you know, it, it, it was just weird to sort of say, wait, like I was at this game and, and like I remember that very differently. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I made $8 an hour as an intern for the Red Sox. So I guess I could be bought for very, very cheap. Um, so, so tell us about your day to day. What exactly does a chief marketing officer do for a baseball team? I thought I knew before the pandemic, <laughs> but from a Red Sox perspective specifically, we are focused a lot on the connections with our fans, um, with and media and sort of the external messaging. So the idea of you know what we're doing on broadcast, uh, our connection to media and you know, baseball information and business communications, social media and content, um, which has obviously become larger with each year, uh, you know, advertising, branding, um, and sort of looking at large scale initiatives for, you know, next generation of fans and, um, you know, and social justice work. Next, we're talking about someone named Alex Cora. Quick background on this guy, if you don't know who he is. He's a former player who was a coach for the Houston Astros during the 2017 season, when they won the World Series. After that season, he took a manager job with the Red Sox. But in November 2019, reports came out that the Astros had been illegally stealing signs during the 2017 and 2018 seasons. 
while Alex Cora was there. What they would do is, using a camera behind the other team's pitcher, they would pick up on the signals the catcher was sending to the pitcher, which meant they knew every pitch that was coming next, giving their batters a huge advantage. And it was all anyone around the league could talk about for weeks. A new cheating scandal is rocking Major League Baseball. You're stealing the 2017 World Series from the Dodgers and eventually getting caught. The Houston Astros players are finally saying they're sorry. A new fallout from the Astros cheating scandal with some Astros players taking heat for how they're apologizing for the cheating. Should the Astros be stripped of their title? Yes, they should. The title is illegitimate. Eventually, Alex Cora stepped down from his position at the Red Sox as manager, and the league suspended him for the rest of the season. But then, after the season was over, in November 2020, the Red Sox hired him back. And I'd be curious to know what that was like for you from a marketing and from a public relations standpoint, uh, especially given, you know, uh, the controversy that that uh, the baggage that he was um, that, you know, was associated with him, uh, given uh, the, the scandal at the Astros in 2017. So walk us through, like, how were you thinking through that and and, and what was your approach? Well, I think on a personal level. So many of us were elated that he was back. Um, yeah, he he really made as a player and then as a manager uh, during the two seasons he was with us. I mean, really made an incredible impact, not only with the championship in eighteen and when he was on the 07 team as well. But I mean, you start looking at uh, sort of underneath the surface of what that meant, you know, as in 07, you know, it's well documented. He was, he was Pedroia's mentor. And, you know, when Pedroia was uh, at that point up and coming and ended up becoming the, you know, the MVP in 07, you know, Cora was incredible with him, um, you know, and someone that was basically taking his job. Um, and, you know, but that's what leaders do. And he's got this incredible energy and creativity and, um, you know, people want to be around him, whether that's players or fans or employees. And so, again, from a human standpoint uh, and from a personal perspective, we were we were excited. Um, he also, you know, one of the things that he really did in 18 was he really embraced marketing. I mean, which is not always the case, you know, sometimes whether it's, you know, marketing or business versus baseball, there could be sort of these natural, um, you know, it's not the butting of heads, but yeah, the, at times the philosophies are a little bit different about what's needed. And, and he was awesome. I mean, he, he, he and our photographer, Billy Weiss um, became really close and he had this concept early on in 18. He said, you know, I want to do a photo of every win and a meaningful photo you know, that sort of was that could kind of tell the story of an impact within that game, within that win. And I want to put them around the office because what it was before when the manager's office was the, it was almost like a managerial graveyard. It was all the managers prior to that person. So you would see, you know, when you start looking, you're going to do the math. You're like, Cause no one's around for that long. Um, <laughs> and he's like, I don't want to see that. He's like, I want to see, and, and they were all black and white pictures. Yeah. So you sort of view that and sort of say, okay, and again, I want to turn it on its head and say, I want these big, vivid, colorful images of our wins. And, you know, listen, we didn't know at that point we were going to 
go on to win 108 games in the regular season and then do another 11 in the postseason. But something as sort of small as that, um, but meaningful and also creative and, and, you know, that made an impact. And that was, again, that's just, you know, it's photos on a wall before you even get into baseball strategy and working with players and leading a team and dealing with media and all that. So again, you know, he worked here, he fit here. He loved the red side. He loves the organization. And that was always the case. Um, You know, and I think also, I think the way, it was, we were all sad on so many levels when, you know, the investigation came out and, and he, you know, he, he had a discussion with, with our ownership and with Haim and Sam, um, you know, when, when things were um, coming out more after the Astros investigation and, you know, they had this discussion where he, he basically said, he's like, I can't, I don't want to be a distraction for this team in 2020. Um and it was really a mutual parting of ways because it didn't feel like it was going to work um, for for the 2020 season. And, you know, we sort of so you don't know what's what's going to happen after that. But I think after such a difficult season for us on the field and obviously, the you know, with the pandemic and the way we played, it just it was it's really been really, really been a, a challenging year for us. And so when he came back, I think we were all excited about again, the, the energy, the wisdom, um, the stability. And, and he, you know, listen, he tackled too. I think that was the other piece, you know, as part of the, the process of um, the interview process, Alex, you know, hit everything head on. I mean, you know, he didn't run from what happened in Houston and, you know, acknowledged his role in it and also acknowledged that you know, he said in his press conference, like, this is going to be, he recognizes that this is going to be a part of the story. And like, you know, again, the way he, he talked about it too, is he basically told his kids, he said, you know, I'm home, which is great because I'm home with you, but I'm home for the wrong reason. Uh, I want to apologize. Uh, I, I deserve what happened this year. It was something that is something that I'm not proud of it, but you know, we went through the whole process with the uh, commissioner's office office, the Department of Investigations, and at the end, you know, I got my penalty and I serve it. You know, it's just, again, no one's perfect. He made a mistake, um, and he acknowledged that, and he's learned from it. And honestly, he's probably going to become an even better manager because of it. Um, and um, But I think for all of us, like we don't really think about it much anymore. We say, okay, like, he's our manager now. We got to get going. And we couldn't be happier that he's back on the bench. Uh, You also mentioned, so, so uh, Alex was on the 2007 team uh, and then he was managing the 2018 team. You also won in 2004, 2013. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, four championships in the last uh, two decades. Um, and I remember listening to a, an interview or speech that you gave about kind of movies that you associated with each year, like you call 2004 Miracle, 2007 Godfather 2. Um, uh, 2013 was stronger because of, I, I think that was the year of the, the Boston Marathon bombing, right? Yeah. And 2018 was Avengers. You had this incredible squad that you brought together. Um so a lot of times people, when they talk about sports, they talk about narratives. Um, and I imagine that you, in your your day-to-day work, you, t- you think about narratives 
a lot too, right? So, um, so how much are you thinking about that going into each season? Like, do you do you just kind of let the narratives emerge organically? Do you try to craft one and like, all right, here's the slogan or here's the the theme that we're going to run with this season? How does that come about? Yeah, I mean, we we have a couple different operating philosophies. One is, um, you know, we are fortunate to have a history, a ballpark that's over a hundred years old, and it's a generational organization. So you know, take 2013, for instance, if we as the marketing department went into uh, JetBlue Park and said, hey guys, we have this great idea. We think we should all grow beards starting about halfway through the season. We can do this whole big campaign on everybody's beard and name them and do this and do that. I mean, you know, they look at you, you couldn't get even the word beard out until they like, threw it out of the clubhouse wait did adam say beards mike napoli who was playing for the team that year explains just something that happened at spring training you know mm-hmm. a couple of us started growing them and uh you know a bunch of the guys you know just, i guess caught on you know everyone's just started growing their beards and um just something we're doing here you know we're t- you know, a tight-knit group and mm-hmm. um you know we like doing stuff together and it's just just part of being in a is there anyone with that one? I was trying to find someone and I couldn't. I mean, I Bogarts because I mean, hadn't even hit puberty yet. <laughs> you know, when it happened that it was organic because these guys were so tight in 13 and, you know, we, we're not supposed to win the World Series. I mean, we were, it, we were coming off of a last place finish and um, it was, an, that was really an extraordinary year. And then, you know, it was the, and it was a cast of, characters and who just started growing beers. And then for us, um, Megan Ryan, who's now the head of, of marketing and VP of marketing at the Niners, um, she oversaw all of our social and she was saying, you know, it's like this beard thing is starting to take off just within our fans. And they're really psyched. We said, you know, I, she, I remember we had this big meeting and he said, we should not focus on it too early. You know, we got to, we should do it sort of like after Labor Day and make sure that there's a small window when we're ramping up and, you know, in terms of hopefully clinching the division and going to postseason, but you, it's hard to sustain a campaign for extended periods of time. And, you know, if we can do it, maybe again, September and lead up to the postseason, we can do that. So, you know, we, that was, that was a strategy um, of just, you have to let things go. And it's so much stronger when the players are doing it so much more organic and it really resonates with fans more. So we, as a organization, like we don't have a lot of slogans and I've talked to other counterparts who I have a lot of respect for, who also work with incredible teams who sometimes have a different philosophy on that, you know, um, cause they say, Hey, you know, every either every year or just in chunks of years, you know, when you need to go out and you have to have slogans, you have to have, and for us, like, I got like, it may feel like we have a slogan, but every we've been around for so long and the slogan from a year to year standpoint and the narrative is going to be determined oftentimes by team performance. We have found the most success by sort of being in tune and listening and understanding what's going on in the clubhouse and then magnifying and amplifying that with the channels that we have. And the same thing in 2018 with do damage. And, you know, that was something that in Alex's first press conference being introduced, Hey, this team can be, this team could do damage. The key of an offense is to have a consistent approach, hunting pitches that you can do damage with. You know, 
the first pitch or, or a 2-0 pitch. You know, sometimes the first pitch available is the one that you can do damage on. So we're going to have guys ready to do damage early in the count. We played really well against the Yankees, and that Brian Cashman sort of mentioned something about getting, you know, doing damage, and that sort of fanned the flames a little bit on it as well. And so we sort of took that and run. But again, that came from Alex. And so it's important for us to be as organic and sort of authentic to what's going on as possible. It was different in 13, but by the time 18 rolled around with the younger generation of players who'd grown up with social that want, like they actually wanted the content. And that's been a big change over time as well. Cause it's not just about our channels. It's about us being a resource for our players to make sure that they are getting what they need, how we can help their profile, how that we can help their um, social platforms. That's all critical to this. And and, you know, people want that. I think we're seeing that with the pandemic probably more more accentuated, which, you know, even at a time when sports were on hold, the voice of an athlete, you know, just as it relates to social justice, as it relates to just communicating with their fans even beyond the games. I mean, they were in, they were the stars um, even at a time when they weren't playing. And so that is obviously critical to what we as a marketing department can do because when they, you know, the players are the product. It's increasingly important to magnify the players. Yeah. Um, so how do you think about marketing or, or magnifying it uh, to use your word when it's a good season versus a bad season, right? Like a lot of people, they'll kind of look at a, a good team and, um, and it seems to, in some part, market itself. And then you look at a bad team, other side of the same coin, and it'll be like, no matter what you do with this team, like I'm not going to be engaged because they're just losing. Yeah. So you've seen the ups and downs, right? You've had amazing seasons where you've won it all. You've had just okay seasons. How does it? How does it uh, affect things yeah. for you? It, it, I mean, listen, it is. It's the. It is the headline and. People are fans, just like all of us. I mean, we want winning baseball year in and year out. And, you know, we've we've been we've had some incredible seasons, like you said, and we've had some okay seasons. We've also had some really bad seasons. And that's just sort of part of the deal. I think, you know, sort of understanding what you can control is important. Understanding, I think one of the things that we've tried to do is just say, like, if we're losing, like last year, I mean, we we had a really, really tough year. There's nothing you can do, you know, if, you, if you're in last place and you're 20 games out, what, I mean, that, what are you going to, what are you going to do? I think what you can do is say, Hey, we've got, we've got some, like Alex Verdugo was awesome last year. He was a shining light last year. Like we're going to focus on him and we're not going to act like, so this other stuff didn't happen or, you know, how do you spin this or spin that? Like we're not spinning anything, you know, you don't spin things when you're in last place. There are elements, you know, you, you have to be much more creative and it is a different sort of, it's a different exercise to say, how can we be creative um, at a time when our fans are understandably pissed? You know, it's more of an art than a science as it relates to getting some of this right. And it's much tougher when you're losing because people are pissed and, and we'd rather have them pissed than not care. So we, you know, that's that's a big that, that's a big part. Speaking of uh, rather having people pissed than not caring, um, you mentioned Verdugo, and that makes me think of bets. That was a really, uh, to say the least, controversial move. So we'll get right to it. The big story is the Boston Red Sox 
trade Mookie Betts and David Price to the Dodgers. There's outrage in Boston. Mookie Betts is one of the greatest players that the Red Sox farm system has ever produced. I'm just stupefied by the whole thing. I don't understand it. I didn't understand it as it was happening. The trade wasn't that good. I don't understand the point of, of saving luxury tax money for next year so then you can go try to get a guy almost as good as Mookie Betts. And then on top of it, like, I just thought he should have been a meaningful guy in the city. Yeah, how do you how do you deal with that? Dealing away like a generational, you know, franchise cornerstone type of player um, in Mookie Betts from from the marketing side. Yeah, I mean, from a, strictly from a marketing standpoint, it is it's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, Mookie was amazing. You know, I mean, just to watch him every day was a highlight film, and. Um, yeah, you know, he was such an extraordinary player. And in addition, you know, we drafted him. He came up through the system. And, you know, he was just he was he was like watching lightning, you know, in, in, in a Red Sox uniform. And so to trade him, like we knew the impact that it would have from a fan base standpoint. I mean, again, this is not something that was surprising. Um, it's just one of the things that we you know, we felt it was necessary for long-term sustained success um, to do that. And getting somebody like Verdugo back um, has been, you know, last year's representative. I mean, it's, it's going to be an, a really important star for us in our next chapter, um, which which we're which we're writing now. So, um, but again, I mean, and we're still hearing it from fans, and again, we understand that. You're not going to win the World Series every year. You're not going to have nine All Stars, you know, out there every every game. And you know, there is this business element to it that is really difficult and really emotional for for our fans. And we understand that. And again, I think it's you know, at the end of the day, if you lose touch with your fans, you're going to have a real problem. Which doesn't mean that the decisions are going to be what the fans want, but sort of the understanding and the empathy they have. And say, of course, I mean. It, it, watching him was like was a privilege to see him every day in a Sox uniform. But um, but we also know that you know again we can't. There's gonna we, we've had a lot of stars. You know when David Ortiz retired, that was a heartbreaker. But we knew it was going to happen. You know and all you know think about oh four oh seven thirteen and eighteen. I mean the the those teams were all very different and. You know, and that's part of baseball and it's sort of part of what we're doing. But I mean, to sort of navigate through it. Yeah, it's hard. And especially for those, you know, who are are in the aftermath, you know, on social on you know, people calling in or season ticket holder, like season ticket reps, we hear it from everywhere. And again, it's not surprising. And um, and we completely understand. Um, but we are doing what we feel is necessary to create a sustained winning product. Mm -hmm. um, one more question about uh, how you view baseball marketing in general, not just for your team, uh, but for the sport as a whole and where it stands. Like there's all these articles about, you know, the, the decline of baseball or, or at least like that you're, you know, uh, that you're seeing um, the stars in, in basketball and football get more attention, more fans, especially younger fans are gravitating toward other sports. Um, um, there are all kinds of theories, right? Like, 
uh, from operational, get rid of the salary cap to um, miking up the players on the field like they do in in the Super Bowl? Like what what needs to, to happen from your perspective? Yeah, I, I think a couple things. One is we actually looked at this. You know, people have been predicting the demise of baseball for over a hundred years as well, and and it's still, you know, still going. It's still strong, um, and we still think for the next hundred years, I mean, baseball is going to be in good in good shape. I mean, it is part of the fabric of this country. It is, you know, when you look at just the volume of games that we have. Um, and the number of people that come, you know, again, this is prior to the pandemic, but it just, it is overwhelming, you know, in terms, again, part of this because of the sort of what we call the tonnage of games. But I mean, you know, we have 3 million people come to Fenway just for games every year. I mean, that's extraordinary. That's, and you know, it's more than the other local teams combined. And again, there, we have more games and, and that's part of it, but that's also, that's also part of, part of it. And there's, you know, that's the strength of baseball is this daily rhythm. And um, so, I, you know, I, I think where we see it as the product for sure, as it relates to the game, it, need, it needs, it does need some, um, some changes to probably keep pace of where things have gone societally. You know, we do need to have a crisper game, um, you know, and, and games that have more action and, and um, shorter games, more action and, and, um, and less downtime. And I think the commissioner, you know, in his office is, you know, they are working hard um, with the clubs and also with the union to try to, to make sure that these alterations are, are going to be happening. And, and, you know, we saw it a little bit last year with some of the extra inning rules and some of the, um, the, the rules with, with relief pitchers, you know, that some of them um, have been interesting sort of game adjustments. And I think the, the way it's gone on and, you know, with the shift and some of and the analytics that have really become fundamental to, to decision-making have changed, have changed the game. And so part of that is, is again, these constant adjustments. And so making it crisper, making more action, putting more balls in play, all of that is going to be critical to this next, to this next phase. Um, so there's, you know, if, if, I think if we had priorities, putting the actual game um, into, into focus is the biggest priority. You know, again, how can you give people more action, make it um, more interesting, action oriented and, and, and shorter. Um, so I think all of those things is, uh, are, are really important um, from a marketing standpoint. I think that would do a lot for marketing, honestly. Um, but, but from a less sort of product and more marketing, I think the, there are things that we started looking at last year because we didn't have the fan experience. We worked much more with our broadcast partner to look at, you know, we had, we had, we had 30 home games. We had 14 guys mic'd over the course of those games. It was awesome. Like my kids were asking, Hey, you know, Oh, who's Mike tonight? You know, can we get, and it's, you know, it's a minute or two of footage, but it differentiates that. And so, I mean, making mics, that's, miking guys miking bases you know making that um on air piece different uh is is important the other you know the other the other leagues have done that really well get there jack my boy boom you know in the outfield you get 
really bored because you don't have any friends. So I got no friends. <laughs> like everybody's far away. So, you know, you got to find ways to entertain yourself. Um, I, I do a lot of grass kicking. Um, I like watching TV. That's the biggest TV I've ever seen. Um, the other thing is, you know, looking at sort of what the digital experience is around that game. And we've had, we hosted these Zoom parties each game for premium holders, season ticket holders, and we've matched them with an alum and, you know, you can sort of hang out over the course of the seat, you know, over the course of that game and just talk. Um, those, I'm not sure those are going to go away fully, you know, even when fans come back. And so I think, you know, there's a couple of things there um, in working with our broadcast partners about how we can be a greater partner and, 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 you know, open up the sport a bit more. I think that those are all critical. You know, if we can make the game crisper, I think we'd start with that and then, and then keep going. Definitely. Hey, thanks so much, Adam, for taking the time to chat today. really appreciate it. My pleasure and uh, look forward to getting fans back in, in, in 2021. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Adam Grossman, Chief Marketing Officer of the Boston Red Sox. I think at least it goes to show for all of us sports fans out there, the next time your team makes an unpopular trade or has a bad season, just remember there's at least one person who's probably having a worse day than the rest of us. We're wrapping up our opening day series today. We hope you enjoyed these episodes to kick off the season, and thanks so much for listening and supporting the podcast. As always, this has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.